0: Hello and welcome to India Speak, the podcast by the Centre for Policy Research. This episode is part of a special series titled Road to COP27 and our guest today is Dr. Salimul Haq. Uh, Dr. Huck will be known to many of you, certainly those of you who follow uh, climate debates. And he is the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh. Has worked for many, many years on issues of vulnerability, adaptation uh, and climate politics more generally. Uh, He is in particular an expert on the links between climate change and sustainable development, particularly from the perspective of developing countries. So like many of the people we've talked to, uh, uh, and we had Harold Winkler on this podcast uh, just recently, uh, he straddles the world of academia and policymaking. uh, And Salim has been a lead author for the third and fourth assessment reports uh, of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Most of his work these days focuses on the least developed countries and their vulnerability to climate change and the impacts of adaptation measures. Salim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
1: My pleasure. Nice to be with you, Navras.
0: And I should say that this is a particular pleasure for me because I've enjoyed working with and knowing Salim for now getting on 30 years. Uh, we first interacted around the time of the establishment of the Climate Action Network South Asia, I think in the early 1990s. So quite a long journey, uh, Salim, and you've stuck to it much more doggedly than I have. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, Salim, I thought that today, uh, both given your experience as well as given the uh the, the, the nature of this particular COP, that we would focus the conversation a little bit uh, on loss and damage issues, on vulnerability, uh, and so on. And maybe for our listeners, I'll just briefly introduce this uh this set of topics so that you don't, so that you can get into the nuance uh, uh directly. So, loss and damage, uh, the idea that there may be some impacts from climate change to which one cannot adapt, uh, that there will be losses and damages that may need to be addressed perhaps through compensation is an old idea in climate uh, conversations, but it is one that hasn't seen a great deal of action. Um, uh, Just very quickly running through what has happened Uh, In 2013, something called the Warsaw International Mechanism was set up to provide a platform for talking through loss and damage. Uh, Subsequent to this, uh, the uh, Paris Agreement actually included a specific article on loss and damage, Article 8. Um, But notably and somewhat notoriously, the accompanying decision text very clearly said that this article does not involve, and I quote, does not involve or provide a basis for any liability or compensation. Um, And then in 2019, the Santiago Network uh, was created, uh, which is intended to catalyze and connect developing countries with technical uh, uh, assistance and expertise. And some people have sort of questioned that as well and said, look, is that much more uh, than a website? So in brief, there have been conversations over the course of close to a decade now some kind of hooks and mechanisms within the within the formal UNFCC process or the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change process, uh, and some in the build-up to this next COP in Sharm al Sheikh in November have argued that this is kind of a defining moment. That this is going to be, uh, if there was a moment to talk about loss and damage, this is it. So first of all, Salim. Would you agree with that characterization and what do you think the implications of loss and damage being on the agenda today
1: really are? Thank you Navroz. Yes, uh, uh, I I wholeheartedly agree and and, uh, you gave a very good summary of the progress we've made or lack of progress we've made over time. But I would add an additional note of urgency uh, for COP27. So even though it's the 27th a uh, COP over nearly three decades of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change having come into existence. In my view, it's the first COP in the new era of human-induced climate change impacts happening. Up to now, we were, we were anticipating it happening and we were talking about how to deal with it when it happens. We've now crossed that Rubicon. It is now happening the floods in Pakistan, Hurricane Ian in Florida. Every single day, all you have to do is watch your uh, news on television and you'll see uh, an unprecedented weather impact that is exacerbated, not caused by climate change, but certainly exacerbated and made much more intense because we have raised global temperature above one degree already because of emissions of greenhouse gases. So we are now in what I call the era of impacts and losses and damages happening as we speak every single day and for the rest of our lives they will continue to get worse not better get worse and so that puts cop 27 in my view in a brand new light it is in my view the cop one of the new era of loss and damage and uh, whether or not we treat it adequately will define whether the COPS in general and the UN Framework Convention itself is still fit for purpose. uh, Because we have failed to prevent climate change. Uh, We have done incremental progress, but it has not been enough. And we need to step up our game. And COP27, in my view, is the first COP of the new era that we now need to be defining. And whether or not we'll be successful remains to be seen.
0: That's a very powerful articulation, uh, Salim, a very powerful framing uh, indeed, and it's it's very compelling. Can I just sort of push back a little bit gently and ask you, you know, the way in which we talk about climate impacts so far, uh, and this is how the attribution literature, uh, which is this uh, emergent science that tries to attribute particular events to climate change, uh, as you well know, uh, but our listeners may not, that literature tends to talk in terms of probabilities. That this event is so much more likely so the heat wave in India was 30 times more likely to happen as a result of climate change and so on which and that language somewhat runs against the language of saying you know that there's a sharp break um so so I, i i would it be fair to say that when that break occurred may not be so clear but we're firmly on the other side of that line now is that is that perhaps a way of putting
1: it exactly that's my argument and i i attribute the the tipping point to the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which came out over the last year. First, the Working Group 1 report, which is the climate scientists, uh, very clearly said that they now have uh, uh, unequivocal attribution to impacts of climate change happening because the global temperature has been raised well over one degree because of emissions of greenhouse gases that's the attribution science that you uh, just uh, mentioned so the scientists are now able to attribute they attribute in probabilistic terms as you quite rightly say they are, what is the likelihood of an event having been exacerbated made worse because of human-induced climate change but that's what we're talking about we're talking about a, an event being much worse than it otherwise would be and quite often, uh, the the world, the, the the countries that suffer these impacts are quite used to them. And in many ways, we are adapted to normal events. What we are not adapted to is abnormal events. And what loss and damage, uh, what this attribution does, is it shifts them from an, a normal event to an abnormal event. And the abnormal is what causes most of the damage and most of the losses uh, that, uh, are, are, that we are talking about now. So in my view, we have uh, crossed that threshold. And now, in my view, the onus for anybody who wishes to uh, challenge the impacts of human-induced climate change attribution, onus is on them to show us that it wasn't exacerbated by climate change. In every single case, we can show that it is exacerbated by climate change. As I said, not caused by climate change, but exacerbated by climate change. I'll just give you the example of Hurricane Ian that just hit uh, Florida. The the impacts of Ian, uh, particularly the flooding impacts, not so much the wind impacts, but the flooding impacts of Ian sitting over Florida, uh, for a while and, and deluging Florida with uh, rainfall, that is unusual. That normal hurricanes, I mean, Florida is used to hurricanes. It's called Hurricane Alley. They have them every year, but nothing as bad as this. And so this is what we are talking about. We're talking about a new era where things are going to be much worse and our ability to cope, even where we had some ability to cope, is going to be overwhelmed. Um, and that is really what we are talking about now. It's the crossing that threshold of adapt- adaptability where adaptation efforts are actually going to fail and are failing.
0: Right. So, it's, so crossing that threshold, as you say, moves us not only to a more urgent conversation about adaptive a- adaptation, but also to a conversation about what do you do when you're beyond adaptation, Correct. i.e. in loss and damage territory. So that's that, So that shift, you say, is a shift that uh, is to be recognized in conversation with the science and the attribution literature helps there. Can you also contextualize for us the COP in terms of the politics uh, of this particular COP? Its symbolism as uh, what what has been called an African COP, the symbolism and the, and beyond symbolism, the politics of a country like Pakistan that has been the most perhaps visibly ravaged by climate change uh, recently, being in the uh, position of being the chair of the group of 77 in China, which for uh, non-climate junkies, the group of 77 is actually many more than 77 countries now, it was the original grouping of developing countries. So it's a very large and powerful grouping. Um, uh, And that combined with the might of the uh, uh, vulnerable countries in Africa. what is the politics uh, of this? And are we up against an irresistible force in a sense? Uh, uh given given these politics
1: well i i do not believe in irresistible forces we we, we should not um uh, 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 you know lose heart <laughs> before that we are against very formidable forces that's well we i are. was i was actually
0: <laughs> thinking about the about the, the the force for change being irresistible. Uh, and I was going to come oh, okay. to the immovable objects of the developing developed world but uh, but you broke that symmetry a little so, bit, but yes. so
1: no to take your analogy yes we are a irresistible force and we are going to have to deal with the barriers who are trying to uh, stop us and i'll I'll uh, begin the story a little bit backwards, you know, a year or so ago when we met in COP26 in Glasgow, that is where the vulnerable countries, together with all of the developing countries under the uh, G77 and China, as you said, 136 countries representing 5 billion people on planet Earth, uh, had a common agenda item we, we demanded and had in the text, in the draft text of the uh, Glasgow Climate Pact, uh, the creation of what we call the Glasgow Facility for finance for loss and damage that's where we are now money we are now demanding money even if we don't call it compensation as you mentioned you know the the, the term compensation is taboo uh, but solidarity is allowed and and some funding for the victims of climate change is something we'd like to we have tabled and under Pakistan's leadership uh that was put on 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 the table in in Glasgow uh, unfortunately in Glasgow um at the very end of the COP, uh, which was extended by an extra day, uh, in that extra day, the text was changed. And uh, we were uh, uh, given a take it or leave it change in the text, which instead of having the Glasgow facility, had a Glasgow dialogue on finance for loss and damage. And this dialogue would continue for three years. So instead of talking about actually giving money, They said they'll talk about money for three years, and then maybe or maybe not, they may uh, do something. So uh, that was a very great disappointment for all of us. Uh, And we were very unhappy with that uh, result. Uh, The dialogue has actually started. The first dialogue took place in Bonn in the subsidiary bodies meeting that takes place every year in summer uh, in Bonn. It was a nice dialogue. It was, you know, lots of people talking. Uh, I was there. uh, But it was, you know, as you know, uh, in in our UNFCC parlance, it was what we call the side event. It was just people talking with no outcome. You know, the the dialogues do not have a a firm outcome in the negotiations. They just carry on for three years of talk. Um, And so what um, uh, the developing countries did under Pakistan's leadership is they tabled a new agenda item for COP twenty seven. It wasn't there before. Uh, incidentally, loss and damage is not a regular agenda item. It only comes up a few every few years when the Warsaw International Mechanism, which you mentioned, uh, comes up for review, which happened last year. But it's not it's not due again in cop 27 so um, we the developing countries under pakistan's leadership have tabled a new agenda item to be included in cop 27 uh, on loss and damage and and we are proposing that this become a standing agenda item in every cop from now on now the good news is this has been accepted as a provisional agenda item so it's in the, in the uh, agenda at the moment, but it will have to be approved at the very beginning of COP27 in, when we are in Sharm sheik on the 6th of November. And if any countries oppose it, then it won't get adopted. All right. And so we are hoping that nobody opposes it, but we are not absolutely sure that uh, every country will uh, allow it and agree with it. And we ourselves are making that a very big sticking point. That just if. To, yes.
0: Just to jump in here and say, I, I, so just to explain to the listeners so even if a single country opposes it because the UN process works by consensus, then the agenda item will be dropped.
1: Precisely. So the the uh, the design flaw in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is every single decision, including every comma and and uh, full stop, uh, has to be agreed by consensus. That's one hundred and ninety five countries all have to agree. One country disagreeing means you don't have consensus. It means you don't have a decision, and that's our biggest problem with loss and damage, where you know the polluters have to agree whatever we the victims want uh, to uh, come out of it Uh, and that and they have not agreed and therefore we have always failed to push our agenda Um, but in this case it it will actually be an agenda fight if any country and in particular I'll I'll call out the United States who are the most recalcitrant on this uh, actually oppose it being on the agenda then it won't get in the agenda and as far as I'm concerned, the rest of the COP27 is useless. There's no point in staying in Sheikh for two more weeks if they refuse to talk about the most important thing, which is loss and damage. <coughs> now, um, I hear that this might not happen, that they may agree. I hope they do. If they do, then we have two weeks of negotiations about what is it we do. And there are legitimate questions about, you know, what is a finance facility, where the money come from, how will it be managed? Lots of legitimate issues to negotiate, but they have to be allowed to be negotiated. They cannot be cut off. And that is our uh, expectation, and we hope that that will happen.
0: So you've really set the stage very nicely uh, uh, for for those who will be watching this with the first, the opening act literally on day one with the uh, approval of the uh, agenda. Perhaps, Salim, you could take us through some of the issues uh, that are sticking points for negotiation around loss and damage. Uh, As you said, it's A, the provision of finance. B, what will the finance be used for? Perhaps C, what is the mechanism through which those decisions are made? Uh, Maybe take us through those and any others you think we need to talk through uh, just in brief, and we can come back in detail to a few of
1: these. Sure. So um, the conversation we are having right now is very much about the domain of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change where all countries come together and all countries have to agree to move forward. Uh, Our biggest achievement in that process was seven years ago in Paris, at the 21st Conference of Parties, COP21, where we have the Paris Agreement. Uh, the two major parts of the Paris Agreement were, firstly, all countries doing what they can to reduce emissions, so we do not cross the threshold of 1.5 degrees. That may not, no longer be possible, but certainly stay below 2 degrees, which is still very much possible. Um, that's one. We're not on track for that, but that's something that's always very, very important what we call mitigation or reducing emissions. And then the second big agreement was for the rich countries, the developed countries, promising to provide funding, $100 billion a year uh, for both mitigation and adaptation. Again, they have not uh, reached that $100 billion, uh, uh, and we are now uh, three years beyond uh, 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 2020 when they were supposed to start it. And so that's another sticking point in terms of uh, uh, delivering the funds that they had promised. So the subsequent cops since Paris uh, seven years ago are not cops for making new decisions. We don't need to make any new decisions. They Each cop is a reflection and a review of how much are we delivering on what we had promised collectively, all countries. And every year we come together and we see that we are not delivering enough we're not delivering fast enough and that's why we have now crossed the threshold into loss and damage we have failed to prevent actual losses and damages happening in the real world and so the cops have to catch up they have to get their act together and that's what we are very hopeful that the Egyptian cop will will be able to do because Egypt is hosting the COP on behalf of Africa uh, the African countries are very very uh, much involved in this issue about adaptation and loss and damage and finance and uh, the Egyptian government has already declared that they want COP 27 to be an action COP not a more this not more decisions that are not kept but actually uh, um, deliver on decisions that were made earlier and promises that were made earlier and pledges that were made earlier and so we are very much hoping that that will be the uh, the tenor of uh, this particular cop uh, uh, africa the continent but africa also on behalf of all the developing countries so it's very much our cop as opposed to glasgow being their cop <laughs> and and we hope that that will um, enable us a bit more flexibility uh, and a, lit- a bit more pushing uh, the agenda that we want to push uh, against odds that that the developed countries uh, may push back on. Um, it, to to be fair to them, uh, the situation is bad. The economic situation globally is bad. Uh, the Re- Ukraine Russia war has made uh, a, a difference. The COVID nineteen pandemic has made a difference. So money is is a difficult thing to uh, uh, generate, but nevertheless. Uh, We feel that uh, $100 billion uh, a year is not really a huge amount of money. Uh, It can be uh, um, met uh, quite uh, relatively easily if the political will was there from the developed countries to deliver on it. And that's our expectation of uh, COP27, that they will generate the political will to actually deliver on something they have promised. This is not a new promise. It's an old promise.
0: So so can I jump in there, Salima? It seems to me that in a sense, yes, the 100 billion is sort of a sore point, but surely the game is now much bigger than that. I mean, some estimates put the loss and damage uh, uh, number uh, on the order of 290 to 580 billion by 2030, rising to much beyond that uh, uh, subsequently. So in a sense, the 100 billion, which is for mitigation and adaptation, is going to be swamped by just the just the just the adaptation and loss and damage uh, costs, and so perhaps your description earlier about putting in place a facility, a mechanism through which finance can regularly be updated is is more the issue. And in that context, I, I, I guess I'm curious to ask you, how do you would respond to some of the kinds of statements that developed countries often give when? such questions are raised of them. Uh, and you know part of it is, as you say, a, a question of words. So we can use the word solidarity rather than compensation and so on and so forth. And that's the act of diplomacy, finding, finding words that allow us to agree. But the kinds of concepts they put on the table as well, you know, we should be forward looking rather than backward looking. How will we uh, figure out whether any money that is put on the, on the table is well spent? Um, these are the sorts of issues that are raised. So can you talk us through perhaps these two points, you know, um, the forward-looking versus backward-looking and how will the money be spent?
1: Well, let me um, take the bigger picture question first and then I'll come to the, the loss and damage uh, uh, specifics. The bigger picture, you're quite right. Uh, we are now living in a climate change world. And uh, the, as I said, the future of climate impacts are going to be on a scale that will dwarf the Russia-Ukraine war and the COVID-19. And the world's uh, uh, leaders are not ready for that. And when it comes to talking about money, we need to be talking in the trillions, not in the the, uh, few tens of billions or even 100 billion. That is a truly trivial amount now in the context of what needs to be done. And in that context, uh, in my view, the COP where the interlocutors are generally ministers of environment who do not possess checkbooks uh, uh, is not the place to do it the place to do it is in fact in washington dc right now at the meeting of the imf in the world bank where the world's finance ministers are meeting right now and it is indeed on their agenda uh, Prime Minister Mia Motley of Barbados has made a very strong suggestion for uh, generating SDRs, special drawing rights, out of the IMF. The leader of the IMF, Georgina Cristaliva, is very sympathetic to that. The IMF is already doing things. The World Bank, etc. And we are now talking uh, uh, trillions in the in the real economy, not just a separate uh, pot of money for climate change, which is what the UNFCC uh, is all about, uh, and that. That has to happen because that's the reality. You know, these uh, finance ministers are all going to suffer the impacts of climate change, whether they like it or not. And they're going to have to find the money to do it and they're going to have to help each other to do it. And so it has moved into that particular domain where they talk big money and the people with the checkbooks talk about it, not the environment ministers who come to the cops. So, so
0: then can I, can I then ask you, uh, Salim? Ha- has our attention been misplaced showing up at the COPs year after year? Should we be looking at other fora uh, with, with, with more attention? And how much is to be gained? And let me turn this into a, a question about the COP. How much then is to be gained? by the kinds of procedural hooks and crannies that we, we try and build painstakingly within the COP, like the Warsaw Mechanism and so on? Uh, or is it a question of having to do
1: both? It's having to do both and not just both. There are other fora and other uh, arenas where uh, these issues also need to be addressed. So um, I characterize it as having uh, burst the bubble of the two-week-long COP every year Uh, It's now a a, a, a 52-week-a-year issue. Every single day, it's happening somewhere. And somebody is having to deal with climate change uh, on the ground in reality, uh, whether they like it or not, whether they've been to a COP or not, whether they know what a COP is or not, doesn't matter. It's happening and they are dealing with it and they have to learn how to deal with it. And we have to share knowledge with each other in real time. So it's, it's every single day, 365 days a week, 52 a year, 52 weeks a year, not just two weeks of the COP. But let me answer the question about the utility of the COP. The utility of the COP, from my perspective, is that um, I go and I'm one of the few people, as you know, who's been to every single one of the 26 COPs that have been held uh, so far. I don't go as a negotiator. I'm an observer. But I do advise the group of least developed countries uh, in the negotiations uh, on adaptation and now loss and damage. And it is, from our perspective, the only forum uh, where we have a seat at the table And get to argue and discuss and and get everybody to uh, listen to us and sometimes hopefully agree with us. Um, Other fora, the Security Council, we are not there. The G20, we are not there. India is there, we are not. The G7, even India is not there, (laughs) we are not. All right. So every other forum that is a global decision making forum, uh, we are excluded from. The UNFCC is the only one, once a year, we get to go to and we get to raise our issues and and make our points. Uh, Sometimes we win an argument, most of the time we lose arguments, but nevertheless, we are able to give an argument and and do it. So from that perspective, even though it has proven to be largely ineffective, not entirely ineffective, but largely ineffective, we remain in the game, we participate, we do what we can, and, and we try and get better at playing the game and getting what we want despite uh, 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 resistance from some countries uh, and so that is our justification for uh, keeping in the game of the UNFCC but it's a realistic uh, uh, expectation. We we don't expect it to have huge uh, uh, repercussions in terms of dealing with the problem yeah. at the scale that it needs to be dealt with.
0: Well that's, that's a very compelling uh, way of putting it. It sounds like You know it's necessary but not sufficient to be at the COP. Uh, But increasingly, the share of attention perhaps paid to non-COP fora has to has to perhaps go up. Um, You you mentioned India, and I want to pick up on this. You know, some of us here and uh, there's been the usual round of pre-COP events uh, held by some of our comparative organizations, and I've been on some of those. And many of us are actually making the point that you know if there ever was a moment for regional solidarity around climate impacts this is it. Bangladesh has of course long been championing this agenda in part spurred by you but you have many compatriots. Uh, Pakistan has also uh, uh, has had notable champions and with the recent uh, uh, awful floods uh, clearly it's, it's bubbled up to the top of political attention there. Certainly the mountain uh, mountainous parts of South Asia have reasons for, uh, for concern um, India itself is a very vulnerable country with, with, with uh, a, long, a long coastline and uh, subject to, the, uh, to violent weather events, subject to sort of monsoon disruptions and, and so on. Do you see scope for the region coming together with a united voice? Because India has often sort of been somewhat Janus faced about this. Yes, we are worried about adaptation, but we also we want to make sure we have uh, access to cheap energy for development. Um, what would you say uh, uh, to those in India and to those in the region about this particular
1: moment and the scope for some serious South Asian solidarity on this issue? I, I think that this is the moment for serious South Asian solidarity, <clears throat> which has been missing, by the way, uh, for the, the past. You know, We each belong to different subgroups within the larger G77 and China. I've mentioned Bangladesh is part of the LDC group. India is part of the uh, 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 another grouping. And so we are uh, part of different subgroups when it comes to the UNFCC. But I think the time now has come, particularly on the issue of impacts of climate change and adaptation to climate change, where there are common issues that are cross-border issues, particularly the major rivers uh, from the Hindu Kush, the Indus on the Pakistan side and the Ganges, Brahmaputra on the Bangladesh side, where we we have to. Uh, collaborate and we have to work with each other and we have to share uh, information and knowledge which is being done to some extent but it isn't being done uh, at the scale that it needs to be done and at the speed that it needs to be done and so I personally am very much interested in and and what we are doing and i invite you to participate is trying to get the uh, scientists and the, the universities and research institutes across the region talking to each other and and working with each other, even if our you know uh, politicians in the Sark uh, uh, format are not that particularly uh, effective, we can still move things uh, forward in what might be called track two scientific uh, uh, engagement. And I think that is the now is the time to do that. Right. No, I think I think that's a very
0: a uh, 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 very good way of putting it. And I and I and I note that you emphasize not just coordination at the political level around negotiations but coordination at the action level in the region around natural resources and, and I and I have to uh, uh, add here that my own organization CPR has actually a very proud history in particular on back to dialogues that have led to water sharing agreements between India and Bangladesh and we've been instrumental over the years on uh, uh, with giants like uh, uh, George Virgis and others, uh, sadly, no more uh, with us. But it would be a lovely legacy to pick up on and and, and, and build uh, build upon further. So certainly, that's something that I think we can look forward to. Um, get, I want to get a little bit deeper into the nuts and bolts on on uh, some of the uh, uh, prospects for loss and damage. Um, you know, one of the conversations that's often brought up is, well, look, as you said, the The context is not great for mobilizing lots of money. Maybe we should be thinking about this, the global context, that is. Maybe we should be thinking about this. uh, uh, Well, before I go there, I think it's fair to note, though, that around COVID and even around uh, assistance for Ukraine, lots of money suddenly seems to be mobilized. So so the question about about tight money is always something one one wonders about. Um, But the other side of this conversation that's often brought up as well, maybe we should be thinking about insurance type options talk us through that the mechanics of finance versus insurance as kind of conceptual frames for this and maybe on the finance side also talk us through what is there a serious conversation to be had around institutional mechanisms that would decide that would govern that finance if you like Mm
1: -hmm. excellent so let me um, uh, backtrack a little bit and then I'll answer your question you know, one of the things that happened in Glasgow last year in COP26 I uh, described the failure inside the UNFCC negotiations to get what we had asked for in terms of the finance facility for loss and damage. But outside the UNFCC venue, uh, we were in the city of Glasgow, which is in the country of Scotland. And Scotland has its own government, its own first minister and parliament. And they actually have their own climate budget. It's called the Climate Justice Fund. It's not a huge amount of money, but it is their own. And they allocate it for uh, good causes in developing countries. And at the time of the Glasgow Summit uh, uh, Conference, the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, actually put £1 million on the table for a new loss and damage facility, money for loss and damage, specifically not for development, not for humanitarian assistance. She acknowledged that Scotland had been a beneficiary of the Industrial Revolution and that had caused impacts to happen around the world, unintended, but definitely happening. She took responsibility and said, we are willing to put a million pounds. And then later on, she doubled it to two million pounds. And she challenged other leaders uh, to meet that. Now, none of the parties in the UN Framework Convention uh, rose to that challenge, but a provincial government in Belgium did. The, the uh, provin- province of Wallonia put a million euros and a number of uh, philanthropies uh, put some money uh, on the table for supporting uh, loss and damage. So these are actually uh, money, small amounts, but more than zero that are available or were made available for assessing, uh, 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 addressing uh, loss and damage. Now, has, has it been has- ha-
0: Has Denmark not also put money on the table now?
1: So so more recently, Denmark has broken ranks with the other uh, developed countries and they have put 13 million euros, 100 million kroner, which is 13 million euros also into the pot. And as it happens, I'm speaking to you today from Edinburgh in... Scotland, where I just attended two days of a big international conference hosted by Nicola Sturgeon and the government of Scotland, bringing all these actors together. We had about 200 people here, all of us doing things. We are not negotiators. We're not negotiating that's going to happen in COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, but we are actually doing stuff with the Uh, the relatively modest amounts of money that were given to us and the insurance companies were there also. So to answer your question on insurance, it has a role to play, but even the, uh, the promoters of insurance accept that it has a limited role to play. It is not a panacea, and it certainly becomes less and less useful the poorer the, the the people that need to be insured are because they can't pay the premium and if you subsidize their premium, then it's no longer really insurance anymore. it's some kind of a, a subsidy or charity. so the we so the answer to your question about. How, how to go about doing it, we are in the process of doing things and looking at ways in which it can be financed, how those funds can be either parallel funds or put into a facility if we agree on a facility. But the uh, the urgency of having to do something needs to be the, the, uh, the guiding light of we cannot wait any longer. We have to do what right. we can.
0: Right. It also strikes me that insurance is a Strange construct for this because the whole idea of insurance is to actually spread the cover over as broad a base as possible, thereby reducing the risk of simultaneous shocks. But in a climate change world, you're increasing the probability of shocks and increasing the spread and their violence. So the insurance model doesn't help you so much if you're in a world of systematically increasing risk,
1: uh, it it, it seems to me. Absolutely. So, you know, the uh, this particular point is well known to the reinsurance world all right you know there are many hundreds of insurance companies around the world and they but they all go to a handful of reinsurers like munich re and swiss re and and half a dozen uh, uh, lloyds and the reinsurers are are insuring across the whole world and the whole business model for them is that they may have a billion-dollar payout in Florida, but they'll collect insurance from the rest of the world and be able to pay that off. But now they can't, they can't spread their risks everywhere. And they are the ones who are pointing this out. There's a limit to how much the insurance world can take on the burden of insuring against climate change, which is so an in- inevitability. Are they speaking out? They are the ones who are pushing for uh, uh, action in the business world, in the private sector. The insurance comp- the reinsurers in particular, because, you know, they, they have a macro picture as opposed to insurers who are just doing bits of the market. Uh, but the, the reinsurers have a broad oversight and they have very, very good models of their own. You know, their models are predicting that they will go out of business in another 20 or 30 years if we don't do something about it. Right, right so
0: i've I've been trying to think, you know we 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 do have a little bit of a you know irresistible force, immovable object kind of situation here uh, with the force being I guess the developing countries and the the groups you've been working with and the immovable object being those who are being asked to cough up and so far have 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 uh, uh, as you say, a few have broken ranks, which is and it's wonderful to see this proactive uh, role by Scotland and others, but but by and large uh, it's limited. The question is what will shift this? and do you think that, litigation is a possible uh, force that will shift this and then I'm going to conclude with a
1: with a wrap-up question and then and let you go see sure sure so litigation is certainly an option that is uh, bubbling up and it is going forward as I'm sure you're aware Uh, initially it's happening at national uh, scale under national law uh, in a number of developed countries in particular essentially citizens, particularly young citizens of their own government, of their own country, taking their own government to court for not protecting them. And these cases are going, I think there are several hundred of them around the world now, uh, they're going through the courts, you know, uh, 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 from the lower courts to the higher courts, and they're making good progress. At the international level, there is a very interesting initiative that is being led by Vanuatu, who have taken a resolution to the General Assembly, which will be coming up on the 22nd of October in the General Assembly, and then it will be debated and then uh, uh, voted on, uh, for asking the General Assembly to have a resolution or pass a resolution that will ask for an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. Now, an advisory opinion is not suing a country, but it is asking whether or not countries can be sued and the uh, International Court of Justice can give these advisory opinions. They've done this in the past. Now, the uh, the reason for and the advantage of going to the General Assembly with this request or demand is that in the General Assembly, we need a simple majority. We need uh, 95 countries to vote for it. And even if 94 countries vote against it, it will be carried, unlike the UNFCC where we need consensus. All right. So the General Assembly is a majority opinion. At the moment, I think we have about 80 plus countries that have uh, indicated their support. We hope we'll get over the threshold of 95 and that the General Assembly will pass the resolution and then it can be uh, taken to the International Court of Justice. Now, these are avenues of uh, using legal a means to hold uh, polluters to account because as we've already uh, uh, established the unfcc is not the place to do it uh, we cannot hold them to account there unless they agree to be held to account and they don't uh, agree to be held to account there um, but in the in the international court they can be brought cases can be brought ultimately so yes there is a role to play it will not again be a panacea. It's not going to generate huge amounts of money, but it is a principle. And really, we are talking about principles here. We're talking about justice and injustice, which are wrong, which need to be addressed. And we cannot just shirk them just because the polluters uh, don't want to do anything about it. We have to push them.
0: It's an incredibly creative uh, political strategy, and I think it, it, it reinforces the point that we that you made earlier about moving to parallel fora. Uh, you know, uh, uh, outside, in a sense, uh, the UN FCC, even though that is necessary, but but it is not perhaps uh, sufficient. And I guess the climate litigation story also extends to uh, suing corporates. Um, and, and that's also uh, perhaps a, 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 an important uh, aspect. I, I will just add that in the chapter I was responsible for in the IPCC, we, we did a, a counting of these. And there are now 18 cases, or when this was published, there were 18 cases in developing countries too. Um, so it's 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 actually becoming a, a global. I think eighteen uh, out of a total of forty four were in developing countries. So I think it's it's another sort of watch this space uh, kind of kind of issue. Let me end, uh, Salim, by asking you this: What would you consider victory, even a partial victory, at al Sheikh? What what would what would your definition of success be?
1: So um, let me uh, preface my answer by saying that. You know, having been to all 26 COPs, one of the things that I have observed is an evolution of what a COP is. A COP started off being a negotiating platform for officials and politicians from governments, a few thousand coming together over two weeks and talking and negotiating language and text. But they have now become much, much bigger events with tens of thousands of people from all over the world, you know, coming and networking and demonstrating and having side events and sharing knowledge. And to me, that part of the COP is a much, much more useful and interesting part of these uh, jamborees. The negotiations behind closed doors is, you know, the reason we're there. But we, I, and I'm an observer, I, I'm not a negotiator. I don't go inside the negotiations. I advise the negotiators, but they do the negotiating. And then it, and what you have now already seen since Paris is you now see parallel coalitions of the willing on forests, on oceans, on coal, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting rid of coal, et cetera, et cetera. So this parallel coalitions of the willing, which include some governments, also non-governmental actors, companies, mayors of cities, um, uh, uh, many other civil society organizations. These parallel coalitions of actors, in my view, are actually the real COP. They are where we all come together to do things, to actually implement what we have agreed to do. And we leave the governments to try and negotiate text about what uh, language which has become increasingly Uh, less and less important because the reality is much much more important now and doing things about that reality is far more important so uh, in my view the COP now is where the world will pay attention for two weeks or a few days uh, to what is happening in the climate change this is the whole world everybody's going to be watching it the media is there they will be interpreting and telling everybody their publics about what's happening and that's our opportunity. It's our opportunity. I, I get. I do a lot of media work on. You know what is loss and damage? The media don't even understand it. Uh, I have to tell them that it's a it's a euphemism for liability and and uh, compensation, which we are not allowed to use in the official negotiations, but we can use in in talking to the media. And they say, "Oh, that's it. We uh, that I can understand. Why do you call it loss and damage?" <laughs> and so, uh, you know, explaining these arcane language issues that we come up with in the in the official process to a wider public and involving the wider public because in my view that is the only way we will get uh, movement in everybody all of us uh, thinking as global citizens first and national citizens second now going forward
0: well, it's a, it's a stirring uh, uh, note, uh, Salim, on which to close. But I I'm reluctant to fully leave it there because you know in a sense in a sense that's that's echoing what Ambassador Dasgupta, one of our, if you remember him, uh, uh, you know our ear- earliest negotiator, uh, said. The first rule of climate negotiations is that they can never fail. And in a sense, what you've just articulated is a civil society counterpart to that first rule, which is that the conversations in and of themselves are rich enough. And the energy generated is in and of itself helpful enough that, that we are guaranteed of some measure of success. But I, that leaves me a little dissatisfied because at the end of the day, we show up at these cops because there are some procedural openings that we feel are worth fighting for. So I'm going to push you again a little bit on the formal side without having a binary necessarily of success failure, because that's perhaps a little bit uh, uh, unfair. But what would, you, what would you look for as the next hook that you want to hammer into the cliff face? Is it, in fact, getting agreement that eluded our grasp in Glasgow on a facility? What, what is that hook that we're trying to hammer into the cliff face?
1: Yes, absolutely. So uh, on the purely procedural, but not unimportant part, um, I, I, I outlined two items. Firstly, the agenda fight, getting it on the agenda. If we succeed there, that's our first win. If we fail there, then to me, that's the whole COP. I am characterizing the whole COP as having failed if they fail to adopt that agenda item. So I'm, I'm making that a biggie. Uh, and I'm telling media to keep, you know, keep your eyes on that. That agenda fight is really the big fight to start with. Even before the official... Uh, um you know negotiations actually start um that's number one we we hope that at the end of the cop we will be able to agree on establishing a facility for finance for loss and damage that doesn't mean it comes up ab- about overnight it will take time to flesh it out and do it and we have a precedence of doing this this is how we agreed the green climate fund we had an agreement we shall have a green climate fund it took two or three three more years of negotiation to make it happen. This is how we did the Santiago network on loss and damage. It was a last minute decision in Madrid in COP25 that there shall be a Santiago network. No more uh, uh, details than that. We then spent two weeks in Glasgow working on the details and we still haven't worked out all the details. So uh, making a decision to do something uh, necessarily comes with a time lag to flesh it out and do it. So we're probably talking about COP28 or even COP29 before the facility itself gets up and running. But we have to make a decision to create it, to establish it. Um, that's how we did the Warsaw International Mechanism, for example. It was not in Warsaw. It was in uh, Doha the year before, that there shall be, uh, in when we come together in Warsaw, we will uh, talk about establishing at the Warsaw International Mechanism. So that's how, you know, progress in the UNFCC and the procedural level uh, works, a decision to do something, not do it, but we shall do something. And then, you know, we take a bit more time to actually make it happen.
0: Great, thank you. I hope you don't mind my, my pushing you, but I think it was worth it. That was a very clear and helpful uh, answer. So, you know, Moving these, 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 this grinding machinery to the point where there is a decision to do something and then using that to actually make sure it happens is the objective uh, 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 for this COP. And I think all of us will be watching very carefully, both the front end, uh, as you say, the agenda fight as well as the back end Uh, a decision to establish uh, can be can be achieved. Uh, Salim, uh, my uh, best wishes to you for for the COP. I hope to see you there in person. It will be nice after such a long
1: time. Thank you, Navroz. Good to see you and hope to see you again in in person soon.
0: Thank you all for listening. Uh, For more information, please do follow us on at CPR underscore India and on at CPR underscore climate. Stay tuned for more conversations leading up to the COP. And thank you once again, Salim. It's been wonderful talking to you.